If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko. And first of all, welcome to the podcast. In this first conversation, I had the pleasure of hanging out and introducing you to my friend, May Lindstrom. I have to say, the story May shares in this conversation is deeply inspiring, and I found myself moved not just by the story, but by her clarity and her integrity as a leader. Starting from humble beginnings as a misfit in the Midwest, you'll hear how May made her way to California, overcame some extraordinary challenges, and has gone on to not just change the skincare industry, but to create a company that is adored by its customers for bringing love, connection, and restorative ritual back into their lives. What started for May as a deeply personal struggle with sensitive skin transformed into a passion for plant medicine and ultimately the 2012 launch of May Lindstrom Skin. Built around the core idea of delivering love and an intention to restore people's connection to their skin through the power of touch, May's formulas combine a total commitment to efficacy with a promise of unparalleled pleasure, and I think you'll hear why in this conversation. I have to say, I've actually had the pleasure of visiting May Lindstrom HQ here in Los Angeles, and you can, you can actually just feel there's something different about the place. And in this conversation, May help me understand where that comes from. So without any further delay, please enjoy this inspiring conversation with May Lindstrom. <laughs> well, seriously, May, welcome to the show, and I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for taking the time. It's, <laughs> Thank it, you. It's really a pleasure. So I actually, where I wanted to start was... Uh, you have all new team members read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I was hoping you could tell me why that, why you love that book so much and how, like, where did that, how did that get in there so deep for you? Oh man, there's just magic in it. Have you read the book? It, Not the I movie. Have, have you read the book? I have. It's been a very long time. All right. So you need to revisit okay, and, you know, find a good original copy because there's some like really truncated, like, you know, super kids book versions now that just aren't as good. You have to get the original, read it in paperback, eat some chocolate while you're reading it. Um, Preferably some, some chocolate that has like nice gold foil wrapping inside of it. Cause that's the magic. It's the idea of, it's the idea of ritual is really, really deep in the company. Mm -hmm. And it starts with little things like this, where, you know, Charlie, even as a child, once a year on his birthday would get a chocolate bar and he was super poor. And so he would make that chocolate bar last forever for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And he would just like crack open the paper and, and just let just the sound of that be enough for the first day. <laughs> right? He didn't even touch the chocolate. And like maybe three days in, he'd like peel back the gold foil and just seeing a flash of that gold foil it's magic. I love it. And you're not even to the chocolate yet. So, so I, how did you I, connect <laughs> with that so deeply? Like, where did that? I mean, I love what you're saying, but I'm so curious. Like, how did where where did you encounter this story, and what was it about it that spoke to you so much? Mm, this has come up over and over in my life. Actually, um, I grew up really poor too, so we had we had some moments like that where there was these really special things. Um, I just totally flashed back on this is going to be way subject change, but when I first moved to LA, um, I was living in my car for like the first year that I was out here, and you know, sleeping in the streets and living in my car. and um, And at that time, there was no overnight women's shelters in LA. Wow! And uh, because there was men's shelters, but they 
the state didn't want to be liable for the safety of women overnight. And uh-huh. so there was day shelters where you could go and you could shower and you could get a change of clothes and you could have a meal and you could use a computer um, and you could come twice a week and get a bag of groceries that had been donated. Um, and so I would do that. And in the bottom of the grocery bag, you'd have this whole bag of like canned potatoes and other, you know, rejected <laughs> shelf stable items of, of the world that end up in, in these places. And, uh, you know, so my dinner would be canned potatoes one night. And then the next night, the dinner would be like mixed vegetables in a can. And then the next night would be, <laughs> oh, back to canned potatoes. And, but in the very bottom of that bag, there was a Butterfinger. Mm. Every time there was a Butterfinger in the bottom of, of the, the donated food bags. And, and I would do the same thing. I'd make that Butterfinger last all week until, <laughs> until wow. I got the new bag. Because I can have a can of cold potatoes um, for dinner if I can finish it with a Butterfinger. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay, hold on. So Wait. how does that relate to my company? Like I sell luxury organic skincare, right? Yeah. But what we really do is we deliver Christmas in a bottle. We deliver love in a bottle. We provide a catalyst for magic in a bottle. And when you open our packages... I want it to feel like when Charlie peeled back the paper and revealed, you know, this metallic gold foil wrapping up the most delicious piece of chocolate in the universe and how much he appreciated it. And if you go on Instagram, like there are so many people who will record their unboxing of our products with the same glee (laughs) of that child. And and it is, and it's magic. And I have people all the time who will say, you know, I haven't even touched it yet. <laughs> it's <laughs> like I got the package a week ago. It's so beautiful. Uh, I'm but just I, looking at I it. can't touch it. And especially the Blue Cocoon is is our, our number one selling product and my favorite product. And it's beautiful. It's it's this gorgeous blue balm. And it's kind of like having your own like personal lake in your hands. Yeah. Like you're holding the ocean in your hands. And people will open it and it's like, oh yeah, I'm not touching that. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to mess it up. Wow. And so, you know, they'll just look at it. They'll smell it. Like, and maybe a, a week or two later, they'll, they'll finally <laughs> let their skin have some of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's a special thing. So many good things in here. That we're, and we're going to come back to all this and, and the company a lot more. But <laughs> I want to just go back really quick because... I, I'm just captivated right now by this image, this, the story you were telling me about when you, you know, when you moved to LA and you were mm-hmm. living in your car. So when, take us back. When, where, like, when was this and what ha- where did you move from and what actually had you take that leap? I grew up in Northern Minnesota. Uh, I grew up about an hour out time outside of a town of 800 people. Wow. And okay. down the road, one way was a town of 200 something people. Down the road, the other way was a town of 300 something people. Um, so I grew up in a really, really small area. The nearest movie theater was an hour away in a town of 13,000 people. Wow. So little. Yeah. Little. This is, this um, is country. <laughs> <laughs> country. So country. I was born in a barn, which was our house. 
So I was born and raised my first years in a barn on 80 acres of forest and daisies in the middle of nowhere, northern Minnesota. Wow. So very intentional back to the land hippie parents. Yeah. Did, did your parents like, did they have a farm or what, what, what was that situation? We were very farm adjacent. We were surrounded by farms, but my parents weren't farmers. Um, my dad was an electrician who later did only solar power. My mom is a healer, massage therapist, physical therapist, um, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. body worker. Um, so I grew up with this really deep appreciation of the land um, and all of the surrounding families were all farmers. And so a great appreciation for what that means, what it means to grow, um, mm. everything that our, <laughs> our people eat, um, was a big deal where, where I'm from. Um, but I also grew up in a really very conservative area. So there was my parents <laughs> and then a very little small community around them in this already infinitely small community. Yeah. And uh, so I left that town just before I turned 16. I moved to Minneapolis and finished my last two years of high school in a program, um, an arts program there um, outside of Minneapolis. And the second I turned 18, I got in my car and took off, headed west. <laughs> <laughs> the goal was to go until I hit the ocean or ran out of money. I did both simultaneously. Timing was perfect. <laughs> therefore, was 18 and homeless in my car in LA for a long time. Wow. Wow. So, what had you? What, so, you, you're 16 and you're like, okay, I'm going to Minneapolis. And then you, uh -huh. did you already know it was a stepping stone to heading west? Or was it just like, I'm, this is the next step? How far out could you see at that time? Well, I knew that I couldn't stay put. How'd you know? <sighs> I didn't fit. I didn't fit. Okay. Um, I got asked this in in another interview. And I think what I said then was, um, you know, I'm, I come from a small town, but I'm not a small woman. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was a lot that I needed to do mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to be able to do it there. And, uh, being me, every element of me, who, who I am as a person, um, it was just tricky. It was tricky to be, liberal <laughs> honestly <laughs> even just just that um yeah uh politically it was tricky uh you know i'm i'm an artist i'm a thinker i'm uh, not uh good at staying in a box and there's just a way that things are done where i'm from mm. and it's and not the did. way that i that's not the way you things. wanted to do things um yeah and uh it it wasn't the healthiest of places. My, my community where I'm from is, is very poor. Um, there's a lot of drug use. Uh, the methamphetamine um, issue is really, really bad there. Um, and that's what most of my friends were falling into. Mm. Um, when you're uh, kind of a creative outsider in a conservative community like that, um, that tends to be where you fall. You fall in mm -hmm. with kind of the party kids. Yeah. And in my town, the party kids, they die. Wow. Wow. Well, it was incredibly great. Like, good for you for, for seeing like, okay, this is, you needed to take a step and, and set yourself up for, to, to pursue what you wanted to pursue. That's amazing.
It's really, really cool. It's funny you mentioned you're, you're an artist. I think you, you told me once that uh, you, you don't do it too much anymore, but you like to paint. Is that something that was, was that your art or do you, when you think of yourself as an artist, do you, how do you, how do you conceive of yourself as an artist? Tell me about that. <laughs> it's funny. I said that and, and I thought, wow, I haven't self-identified in that way in a long time. Um, <laughs> Maybe it's coming back. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it is. Uh, when I was younger, definitely, I, I love to paint. Um, and that was, that was funny too. Um, and is related to my world now in that what I learned was I'm actually really allergic to paint because I'm kind of allergic to a lot of stuff, um, Mm -hmm. glues and preservatives and formaldehyde and, um, a lot of the things that are in, in paints. And, and so, uh, which is largely what led to me becoming a formulator because I was just reactive to everything and I'd get all these crazy rashes and blisters and my body would just freak out when exposed to anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so ultimately I had to stop painting. And so I haven't painted in years outside of, you know, like watercolor here and there with my kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's been a minute since I've like, you know, sat down with intention to do my art. Um, but it's manifested in, in many ways over the years, um, from, you know, from cooking to formulation, to painting, to, uh, just playing in the dirt. Yeah. Just to have to, yeah, have a lot to express <laughs> for sure. So it's, it's interesting because I, I find myself getting increasingly interested in art. Like, so I, mm-hmm. I did not grow up in, that doesn't sound fair. I was going to say, I didn't grow up in an artistic environment. What I mean by that is, is nobody in my family was, you know, especially into art. Uh, I mean, there were certain forms of, of art that people that were like part of the part of the family, right? You know, music, theater, things like that. But it, in terms of particularly visual arts, like there was, I had very little exposure on a personal level to that. But and I find as I'm getting, for whatever set of reasons, in the last several years, I'm finding myself getting more and more interested in it. And there's something that I, I there's a phrase that I've heard. Uh, a few people's few people's reference, including our our uh, our, our dear Seth Godin, which is uh, we'll have to go to that story at some point of how we got connected in the first place. Um, but I've heard heard uh, Seth and others say that the job of the artist is to see, mm-hmm. you know, not to paint, not to sculpt, not to anything like that. What do you what does that mean to you? What do you, what do you hear in that? Hmm. That's been coming up a lot lately. I'm I've been exploring what it means uh, to be a leader, mm-hmm. particularly as my team has grown and my company has grown. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I'm learning is I'm actually a really terrible people manager. <laughs> <laughs> I love people, not a good people manager. <laughs> love the people, just not managing. <laughs> love them. No. I'm not the person who's going to hold you accountable very well at all. Um, or even give you positive feedback because I just assume that you know how much I love you. And so it's, it's tricky for me navigating that one. And then going further down that line, I've also realized that I'm not even a great project manager. I'm a starter, mm-hmm. I'm not a finisher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's been something that I've realized. And then uh, going back further from that, like what I am is an idea manager. Hmm. And so it is my job to see. It is my job to hold the vision and to build the space in which we can make that vision into a reality. And that is actually my job. 
But what happens in the day to day is I get very buried in the logistics of what it means to run this company that is full of people (laughs) (laughs) and and all of their hearts and complications and emotions and skills and challenges and, uh, you know, all, all the ups and downs of, of being human. And, uh, yeah. So that that's a sidetrack, but that's totally where I'm at with that. Like no, the, the art yeah. is, I think you're right. The art is the vision and I can do that. That's when I feel the most free is when I can just dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about that, that there's, there's this almost like this space they can go to where it's like sometimes they can just close their eyes and go to this space. And it's like they they come alive in a new way that they they sometimes struggle to like anyone any creative person I think has experienced the the it's like a bittersweet pain of like you have this beautiful thing in your mind and then you open your eyes and you then you have to go deal with the reality <laughs> of like making that thing real in the world which is a, a reason that I think a lot of people probably never you know they never put that they never put paint to canvas they never mm-hmm. do a formulation they never mm-hmm. start a pot whatever. They never do the thing because they know on some deep level that it will never quite be as perfect as that vision in their mind. Do you mm-hmm. experience that? And if, if, if you do, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because I know you, I mean, as you just said, you are this, this idea manager, this visionary, you hold these things in your head. How do you deal with that tension between the, the beautiful thing in your mind and then the perfectly imperfect reality as it's unfolding? Well, I'm a good dreamer and I'm a good doer. And it's everything that happens in between that's really challenging for me. So when I was a one-man band, which I was for the first few years, uh-huh. no problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> no problem other than that I was by myself and it was the beginning. And then I had my first child and then I was doing it you know, with the child and that was difficult. And uh, But kind of no problem. But now it's, it's really it's the straddling of all of these different universes that's, that's difficult for me. Because I can dream it and I can do it. But if I have to delegate in between and then trust that you're going to do it, that's much harder for me. Is it the, is it the letting go or is it the following up? Um, it's all of it. Hmm. It's that I, I haven't figured out how to fully hand off something um, and to know that someone's going to pick it up with as much like gusto yeah. <laughs> as... As I have, and sometimes they do, right? Um, which is glorious. But which is glorious. And you were talking about, you know, the fear of like putting pen to paper, right? Because it's not going to come out the way you saw it in your head. And that's definitely true. Like I have these grand aspirations of like my ability to paint, but what I see in my head and what hits the paper are totally different things. And I might be satisfied with, with what ends up on the paper, but it will never look like what I imagined in my head. Yeah. With this company, it's a little bit different. When I first started working on the idea for Maylinstrom Skin, like it was just an idea. And I definitely dreamed way smaller than the reality of what is here today. I never knew that we would be here. And so this is the first time where what I imagined, the reality far exceeds um, what what I thought I was building. And now, now is where I get to dream again mm-hmm. and to make space to dream again and go, well, shit, we made it this far. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is amazing. And it's kind of like a taking stock thing. And 
I sure I have I'm sure I have this funny face on you know, on my head every time I enter the studio because I feel like I walk in the door and every time I walk in, I like pause. I look around, I go, whoa, <laughs> look at this. This is so cool. Look at these people. Holy like, who shit, are these people? <laughs> yeah. And they show up every day and man, they give their whole selves to what they're doing. And there's so much love here and there's so much commitment to really doing what we do and doing it so well. And, um, I never knew that it could be this good. And I also know that this is the tip of the iceberg. And so there's like, I have to come to terms every time I walk in the door and go, oh, this is real and super cool. And all right, it's my responsibility to keep dreaming. Otherwise, we stay here. And here is great. But there's just so much more potential. Wow. There are so many amazing things inside what you just said that I just want to I want to like double click into for you for a second. <laughs> so first of all is, um, and and I want to come back to this, but uh, the, the type of environment you've created. So I've I've actually had the, the privilege of coming and getting to hang out at your at, at the studio there. Uh, you were gracious enough to host a few of us there one one uh, Sunday a few months a few months ago, and I could feel it walking in right. So like I didn't you know I don't know I'm a guy who doesn't know anything about like the beauty industry or skincare, any of this stuff. But I walked in and I went like, whoa. And I, I looked around and I was like, I was, it was kind of almost like I was confused. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, there's something different in here. I don't know what it is, but there's something different. And so I think there's something really amazing that we, we should explore a little bit about. And I want to kind of really dive into this in a little bit is, is the environment that you guys have created there and, and what that, how that happened. Because I think it's something actually quite remarkable and really what we need a lot more of in the world. Um, but the second thing that I think is so interesting and, and we'll maybe start here and pivot to the environment thing is you were, you were saying that, you know, it's really, you look around every day and it's amazing to you that this is real and it's your job to keep dreaming again, because otherwise we'll, you know, we'll stay here. And there's nothing wrong with staying here. And at the same time, you know, you have that like deep in your bones intuition of, how much more there is available to be created, to be explored, to be discovered. And what I'm really curious about is that you're at this place that I think is so interesting for a lot of leaders where they've, they've achieved a level of success, as you said, beyond what they even thought, right? Like this is better. They're like, wow, I just never thought I would be here. And then there's the now what question. And at that point, there's this really tricky thing that seems to happen for some people, uh, which is that it's almost like a unconscious self-sabotaging that can happen where it's like, mm -hmm. this is too good. And then yes. things will just inexplicably start going <laughs> awry. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're not really sure why, but just <laughs> stuff starts happening. And I'm curious, like, is that something you had to deal with? Is that something you, you deal with now or have you somehow managed to just dodge that bullet? <laughs> no, I've not dodged that bullet. Um, this year has been an exercise of exploring my own shame around success, hmm. which I didn't know how much of that I had. I didn't know how much um, insecurity I had around particularly financial success. And you know, I grew up really poor, like really poor. My parents raised me on $7,000 a year for my entire childhood. Wow. And, you know, when I moved out, and lived in my car, it was like, well, no big deal. I'm eating canned corn. <laughs> like, it's like kind of not a big deal because I have a butterfinger at the bottom of this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I got a butterfinger. I'm good. So I didn't 
you know, I didn't really know a different way for a long time. And so that, um, I don't have a scarcity mentality because I was always fine. Mm -hmm. Um, but the opposite, you know, this abundance place that we're in, I'm, I'm so lucky. I'm just so lucky to be where we're at. I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, I have a roof over my head. I have food every meal of the day, <laughs> a normal schedule. I have two beautiful, healthy children. I have the most incredible husband who's my partner in every way. Like we just bought our dream house and I have this incredible business and like, there's a piece of me that's just waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. Mm-hmm. And each of these little pieces has brought out some new element of shame in me. <laughs> Where it's, um, I still, I still don't tell my family how much revenue my company is making each year. I'll still downplay what we do in casual conversations with friends who don't know what we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in many ways, that's just how I'm oriented. I'm not, uh, I'm not financially driven. When we talk about goals as a company, like revenue is never a part of it. Um, no, we have this spoken goal, which is every day we're going to show up and do better than the day before. And that's not, that's not about, you know, doubling our sales. That's not about, you know, increasing our newsletter list by (laughs) X amount. Like we don't, we don't do that. But every day we make a commitment to do better than before. And so, you know, we get closer to the source on our ingredients over and over and over each time. And we've been sourcing the same ingredients, like identical from the beginning for a decade. Um, but there's always a there's always a fresher harvest. There's always something interesting um, happening on the planet where, you know, this particular harvest is better than that one. And we're gonna get it. And we're gonna be first in line <laughs> and we're gonna get it fresh. And uh, we we follow that through, you know, from from seed to bottle, to what happens in the customer's hands, to our follow-up customer service, to our engagement on social. like It's so personal and it's so much about relationship and connection. And we just build on that every single day. And that's really where we measure where our success is. Mm -hmm. And so when there's these really tangible things, like last fall, um, we moved into our new work building. And that's where we manufacture all of our products and you know store all our fresh ingredients and do all of our shipments and write all the handwritten notes that go out <laughs> into the world with every box. Like That's where everything happens. All of the magic, my own little Willy Wonka chocolate factory, it all happens in here. And last year was monumental because we moved into a building that we bought and built from the ground up like including like water and electric <laughs> and sewers and walls all the things um, <laughs> all the things we put all the things in there and and it was such an awesome process and there was a part of me throughout the whole thing that was like i don't know like it almost embarrassed mm-hmm. that we were able to do that yeah 
that we had come this far that we were able to do that. And the idea that this year, like not only did I somehow find my dream house, but I made it through like the battle rounds of fighting all of LA to, <laughs> to win the bid and then made it through all, you know, all the inspections and all the things. And now we're in renovations. Like I posted a, you know, a teeny tiny little picture of it on Instagram this week. And it was the first time and I've, you know, and we closed several months ago and and it was the first hint that I gave at it. Um, and it was an exercise because I had shame around it. Wow. I was like, oh, what does it mean for me to have like <laughs> this super pretty house? <laughs> <laughs> what will they think? Wow. <laughs> Which is so funny because, uh, you know, on the other side, like my my brand is beautiful and it's all about these beautiful things. And so sometimes there's this idea that I'm this really fancy lady in this fancy house in this, you know, fancy life and everything is just all sparkly. And it's very much the opposite of who I've been as a human and who I identify with as a human. And, uh, but if you look at my Instagram, that's totally what you would think. <laughs> and so now that I like have a house that could potentially actually match <laughs> this perception, I'm not going to show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's that's I really appreciate you you sharing that with me. It's it's so interesting to me, um, and it's something I deal with as well in terms of um, I don't know whether exactly it's shame or guilt or exactly the right word to, to use, but it's something I, I've noticed a lot. Like I, I spend most of my time in, in the world of technology and one in, you know, my background's in engineering and product development. And one of the things that is uh, rampant in that world, and I think it's rampant, like just generally speaking, but it's, I especially notice it in, in that world is this, this sensation of, or, or this idea of like imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. right? This idea of like, Oh man, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm just waiting for them to figure out that, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. And, mm -hmm. uh, or, or man, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know. <laughs> and having that humility, I feel like, and that vulnerability is, it's so scary in the beginning. But that, but I, what my experience has been so far that when I can get myself to, you know, lean into it, to, to embrace it and like kind of let go of the, the control of trying to control how I show up, that, uh, I'm generally really like rewarded with the response. Like people are really authentic and uh, generous and I find that to be a really uh, cool thing. So I'm curious if you've had a similar experience or what, or what the actual process, you said there's been so many things getting stirred up for you in the last year or two. What's that process? Mm -hmm. Like, are, are they releasing? Are they letting go or, or what's happening for you? Oh, they are. It is letting go, but it's been a really active process. Um, well, first was just realizing that this was even something that was coming up for me. Mm -hmm. Like I knew that I was feeling uncomfortable, but I didn't understand why. <laughs> yeah. And when we were moving into, you know, the the new studio for Maylandstrom Skin last year, it was like, this is really exciting. And this is exciting for our audience too. Like it's it's just upping what we deliver. It's providing a safer, cleaner, like more efficient space for my team so we can do better work. And and it's cool to see behind the scenes. Like people love being able to see what we do. And it's special because we do actually do it. There's no outsourcing here. Like yeah. everything is actually made here. This is not a marketing story. This is like 
it's real. <laughs> All of the ingredients. Having been to the spot, I can I can uh, attest to this. There is like the formulation kitchen, and then thirty feet away is like the shipping department, and it's all like yeah. little pods. I mean, it's, the same space. it's it's so cool. It's my favorite place to be, and and I'm so proud of it. Um, but. Yeah, I don't know what my deal was. <laughs> I was just totally in my own way, and I, I think, like, I went, th- I went through a, a similar thing because um, I also got a nice car last year, which also I'm totally embarrassed to talk about, and I'm still getting over that one. Um, but it's like if you pull up to a valet, right, to park, and if you're in like an old, shitty, broken down car, you're embarrassed to pull up to a valet. Right, you're meeting some friends for dinner. They picked a fancy place. You're showing up in your shitty car. Sure, you're probably embarrassed. I wish I could find street parking. I can't. <laughs> you're like apologetic to the valet. Like, I'm guy, so right? sorry. Here's take my take, take my shitty <laughs> right. car key, please. So <laughs> I lived that world for so long, and then there was this middle piece that was v- brief, and now there's this. Now I'm on this side where it's like, oh wow, like I'm fine. Like I'm actually fine. I'm not in survival mode for you know one of the only chapters of my life, it feels like. And so I can pull up in my car to a valet. <laughs> I can walk into this building that houses my dream job and everybody in it. And this summer, I will be pulling up in my nice car to my nice house that I just can't believe is mine. Mm-hmm. And inside will be my husband who looks like he was picked out of a you know romance novel and my children who are ridiculously cute. You do and- have a ridiculously photogenic family, <laughs> I have to say. I, it's true. I do. I think it's- like, like crazy photogenic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all really weird, Andrew. It's all <laughs> super weird for me. It's very weird. And I'm I'm just really grateful. I'm so grateful. But I feel um I don't know, I feel like a kid. It's beautiful. I feel like a kid and I'm just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. You know, are, are you familiar with um curious, are you familiar with uh um what's his name? Simon Sinek at all? Does that ring a bell? Mm-hmm. So yeah. he has a book. Are you, do you know the book he's coming out with in a few months? Mm-mm. So I feel like, I, don't know. I feel like this book is going to be, I, I've personally been waiting for this book for like two years and I'm mm-hmm. so, I, it's been delayed twice, which is killing me. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I'm like, come on. But the, the book is called, um, the infinite game. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Are you familiar with the, <laughs> with the ideas there? Cause like you are, you are speaking like you were speaking the, the, I almost feel like you're like a case study in this book. Uh huh. There's a book that my husband references all the time, "Finite and Infinite Games." Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you know that one? Yeah. Almost the same title. Yeah. That, well, that was the one. <laughs> that was the original work that Cynic, like, they got Simon Cynic going on this thing. Uh-huh. He read that book and was yeah. like, "Hmm, there's something here." Okay. Got it. So they're related. Yeah. One entangled. Uh, uh, so Simon, there. What's it called? Uh, "Finite and Infinite Games." The one you were just referencing is. I, when I when I heard something about Sinistinic's new book, I was like, okay, well, I love his work, so I'm going to go read this like this other mm-hmm. book. And I have to say, it is difficult to read. It is a, it is super short, but it is I found it to be difficult. And I'm a voracious reader, but um, 
I can see the seed of what's there, but I have to I have to admit I'm very excited for a a more palatable version. Oh, I hear you. I did not read that book. I just listened to my husband talk about it a lot. <laughs> I let him chew on the undigestible ones for me and uh <laughs> do the do the mastication and I'm, bring it over. I'm, yeah. I'm totally happy to eat his leftovers. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um so wait, I'm so curious though, like did any do any of the ideas from that book that you've heard him talk about, do they resonate with you or because I want to kind of shift gears a little bit here into talking a mm-hmm. little bit about the um, the environment you've created at the company, which I, I find to be pretty extraordinary. Uh, you know, I, I'm basically someone who's obsessed with the intersection of uh, work design or organizational culture and work environments and um, product development and how you bring all that together to create, you know, these, these enlivening spaces and products for people. And, you, you know, when I, visited your your building and, and your company, I was like, oh wow, this is fantastic. I gotta I have got to learn more about this. So tell me tell me about that. Like how did um you know it's possible that this fantastic environment you've created just happened by accident, but I think there was probably a little bit more intentional <laughs> intentionality to it. And I'm curious, when you like look back over it, how did you get here as an as a as an environment? How did I get here? Well, that's what I'm wondering every time I walk in the door and look around. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? Um, I don't know, Andrew. It's not, um, it's not an accident. It's definitely not an accident. We've made some really intentional choices along the way. Uh, What's an example? A lot of, of it has... Well, you know, I put my head down. <laughs> I put my head down and I do the work and I operate from what do I think is the right thing to do mm-hmm. and not, you know, what's going to generate the biggest return. What, uh, you know, do I need to do to please X, Y, and Z? We don't have investors. Our investors are our customers, which has been true from day one. Uh, we don't have a board of directors. We don't have anybody that I have to answer to except myself, my own conscience, my husband, now that he's a part of the team, and our customers. And so the guide rails are, are really clear and really clean. There's no like other motive or anything else that I have to weigh in on. And so it's really easy to just be really honest mm. about what it is that we want to make great in the world. And when the mission is really clear, you know, we're technically a skincare company, but that is not what we do. Mm. What do you do? What we do, we bottle love. And that sounds, you know, that can sound really cheesy or it can sound kind of trite, but that's, that is what we do. And if you step into this building and you watch my team work, it's very clear that that's what we do. And you see it. You see it from the team in shipping, how they handle the glass, you know, like lovingly shining each bottle, tying these satin ribbons on every box, slipping in the handwritten note. Our kitchen team, you know, blending and filling each bottle by hand so carefully, measuring so precisely these ingredients that we've sourced from around the world that we've spent years and years and years developing the relationships with the farmers, learning the grow seasons understanding the potency and nutritional value of each of these ingredients and what they do for the skin on a total plant medicine level. Mm -hmm. There's so much magic in this. 
And if you spent a day with any member of our care team, that's our customer service <laughs> crew, what we call the Care Bears. <laughs> like that's their job. Their job is to be like a Care Bear, like shooting light out of their belly buttons. That's the world. <laughs> so, and they take it really seriously. And you know, we we get these emails like just hundreds and hundreds of every week from from clients all over the world who are asking us questions and they're entrusting us not just with their largest and most vulnerable outward facing organ, but also with their hearts, with their vulnerability, with their stories. We are often the first to hear about people's engagements or their pregnancies or death in the family or somebody's cancer diagnosis or, you know, coming to us following some difficult news or challenge, which is causing their whole body to freak out, which in result is creating these skin traumas. Mm. And we hear these stories and our job is to hold our hearts open and keep that space for them. And in, in our ability to do that, we also have the opportunity to send them these beautiful presents that help them to love themselves a little bit more. And that's it. That is what we do. And as a result, their skin also looks beautiful and healthy <laughs> and pretty and shiny. And the packaging is very Instagrammable and <laughs> everybody loves a good unboxing. And I get all of that, but that's at the end of the day, we're a love company. That's fantastic. I, and it's, it's, um, I know for sure people listening to this are going to hear that come through like loud and clear in your voice. But since I actually can see you right now, it's, it's actually, it's so enrolling, like as someone who's a fan already of the company, even if I didn't know you already, I would be like, cool, how do I, you know, how do I be a part of this thing? How do I help? <laughs> um, I, I love it. And so one of the things I'm su super curious about is, you know, I think what you just described is not only really beautiful and aspirational, um, but I, what I, what I'd love to get into the, like the tactics of, of of how you constructed that a little bit more, right? How you built this bit, like because I know it's taken ten years of consistent effort, right? And you, as you said, you started on your own, and then like you had the, the your baby, and then later down the line, it's grown, and you know it's grown bit by bit by bit, but it's it's been a you know ten year overnight success, right? Uh, <laughs> aren't they aren't all? They all right? <laughs> so like, I'd love to hear a little bit about. So let's talk about the Care Bears, for example. Uh -huh. so the care bears, how what how do you know like i'm sure you have lots of people hitting you up wanting a job <laughs> wanting to work at, at at the company how do you know when someone's a care bear like how do you know the right person for the right role and that they're a fit for for the company well most people aren't care bears and so when you meet a care bear it's fairly clear <laughs> tell me what are the signs <laughs> of a care bear <laughs> would you know if you saw a unicorn i think i i hope i would <laughs> <laughs> well, I've gotten pretty good at identifying a Care Bear, but it might be a little bit of a magic trick. Um, there's, it, we hire for heart for sure. There's no doubt about that. Um, for better or worse, sometimes that doesn't work out. <laughs> um, but with the care team, especially, that's vital. Um, there are hard skills that you can teach. And there is, you know, all kinds of training programs and tools to make somebody a more efficient worker at whatever particular skill we're trying to develop. But teaching somebody to really love 
when your job is to hold space and to allow somebody on the other end to feel seen and heard from across an email, that is a skill set. That is an undeniable skill set. And man, that's a tough one. It's a hard one. And it's so valuable because I really do think that that's the piece of our business that is truly extraordinary. When you send an email to us, it is received with love. And what we send back is sent with love. And everything that happens in the middle is relationship. We have clients who we email with, you know, every week for years. It's not just, wow. you know, answering a single question like, hey, I'm pregnant. Can I use this? Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> that's not that's not what the email looks like. It's goes so much deeper than that. Wow. So what is yeah. I love this idea of because you know, many people I've met a lot of people in, in business who let's say are not quite as progressive as what you're describing. And um the, one of the common reasons that I've heard people cite is that um, you know it's it takes too much time or it's too expensive to to provide this level of service for for people. Um, how do you think about that? Like, as someone who you know ultimately is an owner of the company and uh, thinks about has to think about the whole thing, um, how do you think about that? Do you is that does that ever even play into your thinking, or is this just no? This is what we do. No, what's expensive is dropping your values. Tell me, tell me about that. If we did not maintain these promises that we've made to ourselves, to each other, and to our clients, we'd fail. This company would not exist. There's no doubt in my mind that if we were following everyone else's playbook, we would never even have gotten off the ground, much less would we be soaring. It just wouldn't have happened. And so that is expensive. <laughs> metaphorically <laughs> and literally, we just would not have, have taken off. Um, and I am so grateful that we were able to do this slowly and with so much intention where we really could take the profits out of you know those first few orders to support the next few orders, to support the next few orders, rinse and repeat all down the line from day one until today without a single penny of outside money coming in. It's amazing. It's an incredible story. We are 100% funded by our customers. We are only accountable to our customers. And that has kept us so true. And it has helped us in so many ways with decision-making where if at any point I had had to answer to anybody else about any of our crazy ideas. <laughs> like that some of our customer service emails will take the entire day to write. Wow. Because of what is contained in it. And not because it's, you know, a year long, but because there might be really sensitive information in there. And when we buy X ingredient, we are many times paying 10X, 20X what other people pay by clicking a button on the wholesale internet supplies button <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so that we can get it fresh from the source 
at the time of harvest from a totally respected, reputable farmer. And so that we can undergo all the testing that we need to verify that what we have purchased is what it says it is and that it's safe and that it's effective and that it's going to actually deliver the result that we're looking for. So we do so much extra everywhere, everywhere, that if I had to explain that to somebody whose money was tied up in the company and explain to them why it is that we are growing slow on purpose... I don't know. I can't imagine those conversations going that well. <laughs> that doesn't sound that fun. <laughs> it, it might be fun for me. I've gotten pretty good at, at these kinds of conversations. Um, and they happen sometimes. I've, I've had a number of pretty heavy conversations with retail partners. Um, and I've probably gotten a little bit of a reputation for standing up around that. Um, retail is... Very difficult for brands like ours, um, particularly with fresh made products that need to be used. You know, we, we invest so much into getting these ingredients fresh and then making everything so efficiently and beautifully at our studio. Every bottle leaves with a birthday stamped on the bottom of the bottle. <laughs> Every single one. It's so cool. Like If you pick up uh, a jar of the Blue Cocoon today, it's going to say that it's August. And it's August. And when it ships, it's probably still August. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe September. And I ask the same of our retail partners. We didn't pay 10x our mutual customer didn't pay 10x for this product to sit on the shelf. Mm -hmm. So you have to stand up for, for the product to actually get the, get the delivery to the customer that it deserves. Exactly. And I, I like to think of our retailers as an extension of our family. And I'm, I've learned that that's a little romantic of me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that is an aspiration that I'm still aiming for. Um, but I do at least need them to be teammates. And I need them to be on our same team uh, because I'm on the team of our customer. And so I need them to be on the team of the customer too. And uh, unfortunately, they do have investors to answer to answer to. They do have lots and lots and lots of other brands that they manage. They have other agendas. I've got one. I deliver love. So for me, it continually comes back to that. And does this do that? Mm -hmm. That's a great North Star. It's a very clear one. Yeah. That, so I, I, man, this is so great. I would love to hear if there's an example you could, you could uh, unpack a little bit about where but how you took a like went through this process because I imagine that you know some of the people listening to this are you know they are also diehard advocates for something they've created or been a part of creating right they they believe in it deeply they're on the team of their customer they are out to do to make a meaningful specific contribution to people and they are encountering some form of resistance uh, their own version of the 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 retail timing issue that you've had to deal with how would you could, maybe you could, if you could, could you walk us through how you've res like successfully resolved this in the past, and then maybe also where it didn't work, and like what you what like what emerged from that that someone listening to this could actually uh, apply to their own situation. Well, I'll keep with that example because it's a relevant one that we continue to work with. Uh, twice in the last five years, we've let go of our number one retail partner. Wow, 
these were different retail partners, okay. <laughs> but it was the new, the new number, the new one. number okay. one. Uh, so for context, we have around 50 uh, retail partners throughout the world at this time. Okay. And most of our, most of today's business, which is awesome, um, comes directly through maylindstrom.com. Okay. So most of it's direct um, to customer. So most of it's direct to customer, which I'm really proud of because our direct experience is really where you get the best of us. And that's when I get to send you Christmas. That's when you get to intercept and interact with our Care Bears and (laughs) (laughs) with our magical shipping team and really get um, our product, you know, fresh from the source, right from us. Was also great because it's more margin into the company that you can turn around to help like do even more. Totally. So it's it's the most powerful piece of our business, but we do still have a really strong retail family as well. And most of them are fantastic and I'm proud to have them in our retail family. Um, but there's challenges with it. And uh, of those 50 or so currently, um, it was around the same number a couple years back. Um, and twice in, in our history, the number one slot the highest revenue achievers of all of them who were doing kick-ass sales, really just crushing mm-hmm. it everywhere. Big advocates for the brand. Their customers were buying. Not a problem of stagnation on the shelves at all. But they don't rotate inventory. Nobody follows first-in, first-out practices. And these are fresh-made products. You have to treat them the same as you would treat any other fresh-made food. This is food for your skin. It's the same thing. And so it's not about it going bad on the shelf. It's what you've invested in. So the difference, you know, you can walk into a Walgreens now and find shea butter on the shelf for, you know, a few dollars for like a big jumbo jar. (laughs) (laughs) But that shea butter is not the same thing as the shea butter that I get. That shea butter is years old before it's even hit that shelf. And it's super processed and bleached and deodorized and lacking all of the good stuff. And so this is true across the board for ingredients. So what our customer is investing in, why our price point is where it is, is because of what we've invested in on the ingredients front and what we've done to take care of our team internally with healthcare, with best practices, you know, really creating a good, safe working environment to the customer service experience, which I really deeply believe in. And so you're investing in all of these things. And I need that from our retailers too. And a big part of that comes from managing inventory, which sounds like really dry. But it's so important. If you went to the grocery store and there was milk on the <laughs> on the shelf <laughs> that was a year old, it would freak you out. And there's systems around it to make sure that doesn't happen. So in a grocery store, you load from the back. And sometimes if you're walking by the dairy section, you can see this happening. You'll see little hands poking through like behind the wall where the milk is all lined up and you can see them pushing the older units forward and putting new into the back. So if you're savvy, you probably reach towards the back for your milk. <laughs> but most people will grab grab from the front and the system works because of that, because you're continually turning over. And so what I'm asking of our retail partners is that they treat us like milk. 
when new product comes in, it has to go to the back and the older units need to push forward. And those older units are not old. I'm asking you to buy just a handful of weeks of cover when most retailers want to buy for several months up to multiple years of product, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. And so when the system works, it's beautiful. And often we break everything. Uh, Last year, we went into Space and K in the UK. And I had said no no to them repeatedly um, because I'd been in and out of big stores like that. I'd been in and out of Barney's. Mm-hmm. I've pulled myself from most of Neiman Marcus. Like we've done that and seen the challenges with managing inventory. So it's not about product not moving because it's not selling. It's about those first units in the front being sold over and over and over and the ones in the back dying. And to me, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've watched Space and K bring us in, go, wow, we are totally not doing this right at all. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can do this properly. We might not be able to. Let's see if we can work it out. And they were so honest with me uh, about what the challenges would be because I was equally honest with them. <laughs> that I didn't think they could do it. <laughs> Way to lay down a challenge, though. We really, like, we really took it seriously to to approach it as as directly as possible and work through that. And they're still working out inventory issues, but they're very dedicated to getting it right. And if they get it right, this is going to be a really fantastically successful partnership. We're just under a year in. They're working really hard at it. There's still some bumps, but they're committed to it. So I would say that that is a version of this being successful, along with most of the partners that I have that are being successful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be active. But the flip side is those two retailers who were our number one, who I let go. And both of those cases were... I really thought would be devastating. I was very scared. One of them was uh, just a year and a half or two years or so ago. And the other was a year or two before that. And the first time we were a much smaller company, and this was a very big account, and they totally crushed our other like, sales. What, what percentage All of, of the business were, are we talking about here? Um, at that time, it was that one, the first time that I let go, our number one, uh, it was probably a quarter of our business. Ah, wow. They did way more than all of our other retailers put together in their first handful of months with us. Had we stayed with them, they would have been, you know, many multiples over any other retail partner. Um, and at this time, our retail makeup was much larger than our direct sales. In the years since then, our direct business has grown um, exceptionally uh, and would have surpassed that. But at that time, it was massive. And uh, when. When we would do our freshness checks, it was the same year that we started putting these birthdates on the boxes. Um, it was like the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> it was like we put the birthdates on the bottles and it told us so much more than what was happening with inventory management because what it did was made our products trackable. And so when 
when the birth dates went on there, we could then follow up and have manual inventory checks quarterly. And we could see what's moved, what hasn't moved. So we'd see what products are sitting, where the education gaps are. Um, was their team excited about these products or not excited about them? Were people just buying the top sellers? Why or why not? But there was so much more that we could learn. Yeah. And in this particular case, what we learned was, you know, that the demand in this particular country was really, really high for our brand. Um, but that they were absolutely clueless about inventory management. And so they were selling like crazy, but always only the new stuff and the old stuff would sit for forever. There was no management whatsoever of merchandising um, and inventory. And I made the decision to cut the account. Wow. Because it started to feel painful. (laughs) (laughs) It started to feel... I was having a very personal response to it where it felt like any client who came to their store and made a purchase with them and that was the first introduction to our brand, it was worse than if they didn't know about us at all. Ouch. And... Which was tough because they were selling so much. I knew that there was a lot of that happening. And I felt like every sale was like a sting. And I felt it. And I'm, I'm a very feeling person. <laughs> I'm a very emotional person. And I take this so personally. And it really did feel personal. It felt like I was lying. I felt like every bottle sold was me breaking a promise. Wow. And it was a promise that I felt so firmly was the right way to do business and the right way to build this industry. I'm also I'm watching so many other brands come up in this natural beauty space that are new since I've been here and there are there are brands who look to me. There you know, it's my job to do right for our customer. And it's also my job to do right for this community and for the beauty industry as a whole, which needs a lot of revision and a lot of shakeup. And if I can't be accountable for my own product, how is any of this ever going to change? You have to make the hard decisions. I, I, I so I so love everything you just said, and, and I really um, respect and, and acknowledge the, the honestly the guts it takes to, to live to actually live your values like that. Because I mean, you know, values are one of those things that we all know how important they are, but they at the same time, most people have. You know, we've all seen the stupid posters on the wall of like the the terrible corporate motivation posters and, and things like that, but. I'm curious, it, have you, as you, as the company's grown, you know, you clearly as a founder and a leader of a company, you have such a strong internal compass for what the right thing to do is and for how to make these decisions. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I always think about when it comes to, um, that, that some mentors have taught me over the years when it comes to like leadership and growing an organization is that, you know, how do you scale an organization? Uh, how do you scale leadership? And a lot of, so much of it is, um, training people, like teaching someone to think, not teaching them how to do, but teaching them how to think the way you would think. So you can go do something else and they would show up just like you would show up. Um, and what I'm really curious about is how, how, what steps have you taken to kind of uh, externalize these values, right? Like you have this, this internal compass. Um, how do you teach your, your team about that? And, and specifically, like when I think about values, the way I, my personal opinion and, and bias here is that 
um, you know, everyone can, anyone can say a value like integrity, right? Or honesty. Um, you know, these, these wonderful sounding words, we know how important these concepts are, but I think where most value exercises to put air quotes around it break down is that they never tell people what it looks like in action. Like, what is the, like, what does this value? Like when we say this word, we mean it looks like this in your day-to-day life. And I'm really curious um, if you guys have, if in your experience, you've had anything like that as you've grown the company and as you've started to transmit these values in this way of thinking about business and operating, not just a company, but really like a living in ethos. Hmm. There's... A lot of that it really just I think comes from observation. I'm such an open book about everything <laughs> that's going on. And so my team has gotten to see me really process all of these things. Um when when we let go of our first number one retailer, for example, the team had been so excited to have an account that was this big. They had seen me through the onboarding process. Well, first they saw me through the contract process, which was very lengthy and complicated, which I also learned if you're having a lengthy, complicated contract process, it's probably not going to go that well from there. <laughs> probably not a great time. Um, so I've learned, I've learned a few things. Um, but they watched me go through that, through all the legal stuff to get set up with this account. And then they watched us launch. And nobody really had any idea how big this would be. Mm-hmm. And then it was really big. And so everybody got to like get really geared up. And, you know, we moved from like working at like a three or a four, like pretty chill to like, whoa, we're working at an 11. And that was really exciting. And I think was inspiring to everybody to see, you know, it felt like we were at the tip of the iceberg. And this really proved that we were because this was just one account. And overnight, it was a massive change in what we were doing. And I think that got everybody really fired up. So there was all this energy around this new retailer and everybody was so excited and there was such like good happening on our side that when we'd been with them long enough for us to start doing these freshness checks and seeing the red flags, it was a bummer. And it was, you know, a little like shock to <laughs> the system. It was like, oh, you like know, like falling. <laughs> yeah, it shattered that a little bit. And then we worked so hard to try and correct that um, because it was a relatively new thing for us. These birthdays on the bottles were new that year. And so we hadn't had much experience in what does it mean to really support our retailer in this too? We're asking them to break the box. And so I can't just ask you to change everything about how you've managed inventory through all history um, overnight and expect you to succeed. And so I really took it seriously to give my best effort too and to be as supportive and give the best tools. And we bought back so much product in order to be in support of this effort together. Um, but it wasn't met. It wasn't met and the communication wasn't great. And they weren't as gung-ho about our belief system as we were. And I really do need that from our partners. 
you can't share our story if you don't believe in our story. What What does someone need to believe to be to be the right partner for you? Well, that our customer is worth it. Mm. Like it's it's so simple when it comes back to that. Our customer is worth it. Our job is to deliver love. Our job is to hold that space and make sure that they feel seen and heard. And there was nothing in, oh, it's totally okay to sell you this product that's two years mm-hmm. old that rang true in any of that. Yeah. What that says to me is you don't think that the customer is worth it, that you think that, that you know saving that sale is more important. It says... I don't hear you and that you are trying to invest in a brand that's known for fresh ingredients. (laughs) I don't see you coming to me and entrusting me with your skin um, and with your financial investment. It's saying, I don't give a shit about you. It's saying, I'm running a business and this is how I'm running a business. And it's about the bottom line. And that just hurts my heart. Yeah. So do you, have you evolved any, um, any ways of telling in advance? Like, are there anything, is there, are there any things you notice now early in the conversations with a potential partner that, you know, you can, you can actually pick up on and say, this is a little thing that maybe you missed in the past, but mm-hmm. now you notice it and you know, it's not going to work. Sure. Yeah. Anyone who says, oh yeah, we, that's not going to be a problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who goes, Oh, totally. Of course we rotate our products. Of course. Anyone who's too sure that they've got it, <laughs> they don't. They absolutely do not. Uh, it's a good sign for me when people go, you know, I think that we're doing that, but let me check on that and find out exactly what we're doing and I'll get back to you. Because that's at least on the right track. And they have, it seems like they also, there's a, there's a level of, um, Humility and openness there to, and at least a willingness to look at what they're doing is maybe what's behind that, right? So saying, I'm not going to sit here and just state that everything we're doing is, of course, it's perfect, right? You know, but sure. it's, no, it's a, it's a sales, it's a sales thing. And it's kind of like a first date. Like when we receive an inquiry from a new retailer and they're trying to sell themselves. You know, they're going to tell us how excellent their customer service is. They're going to tell us how beautiful their packaging is. They're going to tell us that our customers are in good hands. And we're going to want to believe them because they also started a business, hopefully based on caring about something. (laughs) And, and I am such a sucker. You send me a nice email and I am just a wide open heart. (laughs) So it's really hard for me, but um, there are a a few things that we ask and, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, if you're like, oh yeah, totally. We're great at that. Usually not. You're not. (laughs) You're not. (laughs) And, And I'm okay with you not being good at it or even saying, you know, we've never done that before. How do we do it? Mm -hmm. That's Okay. I will meet you where you are, but I have to know where you are to meet you there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of a, a story I think you mentioned when I, when I got a chance to visit the company. And this just, I think, is another, another thing that would speak to um, sort of the, the very intentional way that I think you, you run the company. Uh, you, you mentioned, tell me the story about the product recall. <laughs> so that's a juicy one. Um, yeah. 
Well, my promise is to get it right. You know, and uh, there was a day when we didn't get it right. What, what we learned was this product, the Honey Mud, which was our number two bestseller. Uh, we had sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of units over a course of several years, and uh, always been totally stable, solid formula. Great. Like never a complaint. This is a universal. Everybody loves this product. Everybody loves this. There was yeah. no like, oh, you know, these ones are great, but yeah, the honey bun, not so much. No, everybody this is loves mom that and apple one. pie. Everybody loves this. It thing. Was, exactly. It was it was a surefire win. And it was a great introductory product for that reason. It was how a lot of people came to be introduced to the line. So it was definitely a good gateway drug. So very established yeah. product. And and then uh, we started getting emails from a handful of clients who were experiencing mold in their jars. And at first, it just seemed like a really freak thing because we undergo testing. We sell in the EU. There's There are so many... Things that we have to do to make sure that not only, you know, do our formulas look good and smell good and (laughs) make our skin feel good, but that they're safe and that they're stable and that they're going to remain stable. Um, not just for like the amount of time in which I want you to use them, which is as quickly as possible so that they are fresh and potent and full of nutrition, but also they are designed to be shelf stable for like a long time, much longer than I want it to take for you to use it. So. I got these emails and we started tracing batches, which is great because we track everything. And so we could look back and we could say, all right, well, you know, the the challenge with naturals is we use fresh ingredients. And that means with every single ingredient, there's a new batch. There's a new harvest. So, you know, I can I can be importing, you know, rose powder, for example, uh, a new a new harvest every handful of months for years. But it's not going to be the same this month as it was six months ago or six years ago because it comes from a different literal flower. <laughs> literally different plant. <laughs> right? It's literally a different plant. So like it's technically the same genus species, not the same thing. And that's true across the board. And so with every single micro batch that we make, there is something new. We're not changing the recipe. We're not changing the formula. But it's inherently new every time. And so when this started happening, it was all the same batch. And so we went, okay, like what in here has changed since the time before or what's showing up differently? And we thought we had it pinpointed to a batch of honey. And so we started testing our honey and honey is also inherently alive. And ours is raw so that it retains all the good enzymes and you know life activity in it. <laughs> <laughs> which which is the point. You don't want to heat your honey and kill all the good stuff. Uh, but that comes with challenges because how much life is too much life. <laughs> you tell me, man. 
uh, well, that's what we had to learn is where is this threshold for what is too active? And historically, we'd apparently been under that baseline. And then, and then one day we weren't. And so we thought it was the honey, but we weren't really a hundred percent sure because you can't be a hundred percent sure until everything you can retest, but then that takes incubation time. But because the activity that's testable in honey was showing high for the remaining honey that we had from that batch that we were able to test that honey and those numbers came back high, we thought we'd solved the problem. And so we said, all right, well, it's limited to these. Swap them out, get new ones. That's really unfortunate, but this should be a weird fluky one-off thing. And went back to normal. And it was months until it happened again. But then it happened again. And when we saw that it was happening again, we pulled it. Because I didn't have the answer. Because I had thought that I had the answer. And I was wrong. So what happened then? Uh, I sent a really fun email (laughs) to thousands and thousands of people um, that said, Hey, something's not right. And I'm not going to sell you the honey mud um, until I can make it right. And I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to find out. And when I do, this will be back better than ever. But in the meantime, don't use your honey mud because there is a chance that it could go wrong. And like wrong is relative, right? It's like going to the grocery store, you buy a loaf of bread and that particular loaf gets mold on it earlier than you would expect. It's not a reason to never buy bread again (laughs) or to ever eat bread again. You don't totally distrust bread now because you had a piece of bread with mold on it. Um, But it should not happen in skincare. It should not have happened in this formula. We are very careful. This was a formula that has been proven stable for years and years and years. And this was a really unfortunate episode. So what what happened after the email? Did you did you do a recall or what was the next step? Yeah, so because it we did we did a cease of sales, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> which is not a which is not a formal term, um, but that's what I called it. We stopped selling it. We told all of our retailers to stop selling it. We bought back any remaining units from our retailers. Um, anyone who wanted a refund got one. Anyone who. Um, you know, still today, and it's been several months since then. But if somebody emails us and they just found out, like I'm giving them a refund or I'm sending them another product or um, we're going to make it right. So for people who did make this investment, I'm deeply committed to making sure that we do good by them. Um, and for our retail partners too, who also invested in the product that became unsellable or that resulted in returns. That's a big hit for everybody. Um, but there was only one day to, way to do that. Uh, there wasn't um, there wasn't a more official recall. This was not like an FDA generated thing. This was a a morals mm-hmm. thing <laughs> an ethically driven for me. Thing. It was a it was totally an ethically driven thing. And um, yeah, my husband and I just when these emails, the second round of them showed up, uh, we just stayed up one night and went, "All right, so." There's clearly only one thing to do here. 
So what are we going to do? And that night we sent uh, an email both to our direct audience and to our retail partners so that they were in sync together with uh, hearing this decision. And and it was it was funny because I I definitely held my breath um, sending that. It was very scary. We're still a small business. Um, there's a lot of distrust in the natural sector of beauty um, around safety, around formulation, um, and for good reason. And uh, it's also our number two product. Financially, we really do count on every sale. Um, that's part of our customers, our investors. We need our customers to be a sustainable business. And so I knew when I sent that that email that there was a chance that it could take us under. I also knew that there was absolutely no other right call to make. If even one person receives a product that's not the best of us, I did not do my job. So for me, that that was the only action to take. And then there was a sense of relief. Uh, it was... Um, I was very anxious to send it. Uh, but then... Overwhelmingly responsive, or responsive? Is that it is word? now. I like it. <laughs> An overwhelmingly <laughs> positive response from from our audience. We received so much love and support um, for for having done that, which which was funny too, <laughs> because even our retailers were were surprised. And, and I was surprised by their surprise because it seemed so obvious. Um, but it was interesting how many stories were shared with me of um, other brands who'd had products go bad or have, have issues come up um, in formulas where it was never talked about where it wasn't a public topic, where it wasn't something that ever got expressed in a newsletter or a, a social blast of, of any kind. It's not something that founders talk about or formulators talk about um, ever publicly. Um, you might hear about a recall if it was FDA mandated, um, but like a little bit. And then it's buried on those brands' website. There's no mention of it anywhere. You can't find it. And... And I asked a couple of my retailers, like, well, <laughs> when that happens, when somebody does pull a product and bring it back with a new formula, what, you know, what, <laughs> what does that look like? And they said, you know, we'll get a product and it'll have mold in it or something, and maybe they'll replace it or maybe they won't, and maybe they change the formula and maybe they won't. But it's not something that's talked about wow. at all. So it's all just just hush and hush. Pretend it's not there. Total hush hush. And this is no different to me than anything else that I've stood for. And so for me, me talking about it just seemed so obviously the right thing to do. The same as standing up and like really starting a fight about proper inventory management. These things go hand in hand. And so as much as I'm like the girl on the mission for what it means to really manage fresh made beauty products... Um, in the industry as a whole, I guess I'm also now <laughs> poster girl for, you know, just do it right. And if you make a mistake or run into a challenge, you know, I'm, I'm working with nature and nature is wild. And I remember that every time there's, there's something so sacred about the work that 
I'm doing, it feels like to me, and I feel like I have a real responsibility to get it right. But I can't get it right every time. Nature is my boss, and she's a little unwieldy. <laughs> As a mind of her own, huh? Yeah. But it's my job to keep trying, and uh, I'm reworking the formula, um, not just to solve this you know, one particular moment, um, but to prevent against it in the future. Because what I've learned is that there was a possibility for this to happen. And prior to this happening, we had years of history telling us that there was no possibility of this. Wow. So is this, is this, uh, so what is the story finished yet or is the story still, still in flight? Are you still investigating the, I was still in flight. Um, yeah, I, I, I still don't know fully why that happened. And I'm learning that I don't have to know fully why it happened to understand that I need to do something to make it sure it never happens again. And so I'm just approaching this differently. And, uh, and what it's making is for a much more interesting formula. <laughs> it's allowed me to be creative. It's allowed me to really think outside the box because I'm deeply committed to natural. But I'm also deeply committed to making sure that every customer ever always has the best experience of us. And this wasn't it. So when the honey mud comes back, which it will, it will truly be better than ever. And I'm really excited for that. And the emails that we still get every single day with people asking when it's coming back. That was really... That was the kind of coolest surprise. I really thought there would be... I don't know. Some big backlash. It seems like it's, it's the opposite. <laughs> and there wasn't. It was. There was just so much love. And there was so many people who were just like, well, I'm just heartbroken that I'm not going to get to have it for a while. And... That was the most rewarding thing that I could possibly hear because it was really scary. It was the right thing to do. And it was also really scary. And knowing that everyone who has brought us to where we are today is going to still be here with us tomorrow and that I get to keep showing up and my team gets to keep showing up and doing what we do best uh, across the board, not just for the honeymoon, but for the full collection and for this full mission that we have, that we get to keep doing our jobs is is just so huge. And I just have so much gratitude for that. So the Honey Mud will be back. I'm hoping end of this year, early next. But this is not something I'm going to rush. Testing takes time. Incubation periods literally take time. They're timed <laughs> tests. <laughs> like I cannot speed up a three-month test. It's a three-month test. <laughs> and if there are tweaks that happen following that three-month test, well, there it goes again, another three-month test. So that's just where we are. And so it's been a really big lesson in patience uh, for me. But I am far more committed to getting it right than I am to getting it quickly. And that's how I'm wired. No, I love it. I love it. And, you know, I think what really stands out to me, there's so many really great things that jump out at me about that story, jump out to me about that story. Um, but I'm, I'm just so, uh, you're, it's, you're such a great example of someone who's actually making the hard calls and not doing the easy thing and taking the risks, right? Like, tw- you know, let's look at three different things you've come up in this conversation, right? Twice you fired your number one vendor. 
<laughs> and then you had to like stop selling your number two product, which represented, I'm guessing, a pretty <laughs> substantial percentage of uh, of your revenue at the time of your direct business, right? Yeah. Like three Huge. three concrete examples of you making a really what, what I think for a lot of people would be a really tough call. Like that is a that for an entrepreneur that is a hard call to say I'm going to walk away from a whole bunch of revenue that my company depends on. <laughs> and what I'm so curious about is what do you think it is that enables you to make those calls that sometimes other people wouldn't have made? Well, it's that baseline that we talked about when, when the question comes back to what would the customer want? Does this deliver it? It's, there's no maybe in here. There's no gray area. There's no middle of the line. That answer is super clear. So you can play dumb <laughs> and act like you don't know the right thing to do, but you know the right thing to do. And if there were other options on the table, if we had a different baseline, if we had a different you know, North Star, it would be very easy to make a different call on any of the things that I make a call on. But I don't. I have one very clear North Star. So there's no decision <laughs> yeah, making. The, you know, where, <laughs> the decision's made. My job is to then just act on the decision that's already made. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's been part of the saving grace, actually, is I don't know what other people do. I don't know what they do. I don't know how they do it. And I think that there's been a lot of times over the years where like having some insight into some other people's processes probably could have helped us to be more efficient, to, you know, move a little quicker, to grow a little faster, like just in terms of like equipment and technology for sure. Like there's so many things that if we weren't just like <laughs> forcing, yeah, strengthening yeah. our way, like would have been very different. Um, but for as many benefits that could come from that, there's a cost. Mm-hmm. And for me, the distraction of going, oh, they're doing it like that. That's super expensive mm-hmm. to me. Because then I get into comparison yeah. mode. I get competitive. I get like all these things that aren't naturally that much a part of yeah. who I am yeah. as a human. And um, in business especially, I need to stay focused. Because if I'm thinking about all of that, then I start being fearful. And if I'm operating from fear, I can't have my Northern Star be love if I'm operating from fear. You can't do love from fear. (laughs) It's it's so obvious. But like, yeah, as you say it, I'm like, yep, that's, there you go. Like you can do my job is to increase revenue by 80% from fear. Sure. You can rally behind that in all kinds of fearful ways, but like that's not my North Star. Yeah. So, you know, like the entire company is built around some very out of the box kind of what defines our success. When what you're doing is so stable. Right, like you've been on this mission for ten years. What I'd be afraid of is I'd be afraid of getting bored. Right, that like, and totally. And what I'm curious about is like, how? What's that? What's that like for you? Because clearly you're not bored. 
what is it that keeps it like motivating, challenging, stimulating, interesting for you? <laughs> well, <laughs> Andrew, once you think you've got it all figured out, you're going to have to fire your number one retailer and then do that <laughs> again. And then this thing that you thought you really had figured out that's like making you millions of dollars, you're going to have to pull it and explain it. <laughs> and... Yeah. And then you're probably going to outgrow your space. You'll have to buy a new building and build it. That's a whole new... You ever been a contractor for like building a commercial zone built? I, you know, So no, like it, in theory, I'm doing the same thing I was doing 10 years ago, but I am not. I am not. And it's like, you know, trying to catch snowflakes or something like you just can't. You can't, you can't, you can't catch one and hold it much less like all of them (laughs) (laughs) that's coming. So, um, yeah, I never would have thought, I mean, really, like I thought that this was going to be something that I did like on the side while like my new baby napped because I thought she would. And I thought (laughs) that that would be enough. So yeah, that it turned into this whole other thing. And I'm responsible for all these people, like both my own people internally, but all the retailers that we affect and like the thousands and thousands of customers that we have that are trusting me to show up and do my job. There's there's like not a way to be bored. There's too much to do. And so it's more just like it happened and you look up and you go, oh, it's been 10 years. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) How'd that happen? (laughs) That was quick. That was quick and it was slow. And in that 10 year period, like I met my husband, I had two kids, like my whole life changed. When I started working on this company, I was 25 years old. I'm 36. I had no idea where I would be in any of those things, if you had told 25-year-old with me with this idea, living in like my ex-boyfriend's super shitty apartment, <laughs> like, like being like kind of depressed and pretty clueless and like at the end of my rope from all the other random jobs that I was doing. Hey, just look 11 years into the future and imagine your own Willy Wonka factory with like super cute husband and like the sweetest kids you've ever seen. And like... Your dream house, financial flexibility, everyone's healthy, everyone's fed. Oh, and all of your employees get like not only fair pay and benefits, and they also get like massages twice a month (laughs) and like a bunch of really over the top stuff that's totally unnecessary but awesome. That's going to be your life in 11 years. It would have been unbelievable. It's unbelievable now. So certainly my 25-year-old self had no clue. Thank you. No, this is really... I'm so glad I asked that question because this is exactly the kind of thing I need to hear because I'm like, I can see this... <laughs> this uh, I can see that this has been like something holding me back in my life. And so it's really... I really appreciate hearing that because I'm like, okay, I know that that is a... That's a fucked up piece of psychology that isn't serving me. And I don't know exactly where it came from. I don't really care. I just want to handle it. Yeah. No, it's it's one step at a time, right? Like if you're going to climb a mountain, you can't go, I'm going to climb that mountain. You go, I'm going to take that step. 
did it. I'm going to take that step. Did it. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you're at the top of the mountain. And you're looking around, you're going, whoa, how'd I get up here? Like when I walk into this studio, it's that. It's me standing on the top of the mountain going, wait, I thought I just put my shoes on. Like, what do you mean I'm at the top of the mountain? Like, I don't get how this happened. And you can't, like, I don't think you can plan for that. Like, I've never had a business plan. Yeah, no, it's interesting because like the, the climbing the mountain thing, I, I feel like as as somebody creative and entrepreneurial, I, I, I live in the tension between the mountaintop and the step. So I used to think that my job as a leader was to be like really good at stuff. Then I thought my job as a leader was to know all the things. Right? I said, okay, well, if my job isn't to like do all the things, then surely my job is to like have the answers. Right? Like I'm supposed to be the guy who you have the question, I have the answer. Like I'm really good at doing that. And then I discovered, holy shit, that's not my job either. So then I was at this place where I'm like, well, fuck, if my job isn't to do the things, if my job isn't to know the answers, what's my job? Mm-hmm. And I, it was like a thing for me for a while. <laughs> Am I relevant? Yeah. My job wasn't to do all the things, but it was to ensure that like the right things got done. It wasn't to know all the right... It wasn't to know all the answers to the questions, but it was to ask, make sure the right questions got asked. And then it was mm-hmm. like, okay, so what is it that I'm really supposed to be doing? And the answer I've come to so far was to hold the vision while it was being fulfilled Mm -hmm. to keep it alive, to keep it present, to keep it real while we're on the journey. So to like keep the mountaintop present, even on step two. Yeah. So that's like, I could have said those same words verbatim, which has been like the learning of like, my job is not to manage the people or even the projects. It is to manage the idea. Yeah. And I think that that's like essentially the same idea. But yeah, that's a challenging one. And then the other part of that, the imagining the mountaintop thing, that's a great piece. But if at 25, I had set my mountaintop vision, I would have undershot. Right. Because yep. you're right, right? You could, you could imagine one mountaintop. And this is why a lot of really ambitious and successful people get super depressed, right? Like they hit, their, they hit the mountaintop, they get it. And then then, then what, what? Right? And then yeah. they either can't think of a new thing that's exciting to them or they, well, yeah, usually they can't think of anything that's exciting to them as this thing they've built up for yeah. decades, maybe. Right. And then it's a really hard switch from chasing an end to pursuing a path. Yeah. And I think it's a tough yeah. switch for people. Well, and also getting to that mountaintop and going, this isn't that yeah. exciting. You're like, shit, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> like, I got here and so what? Yeah, you can't make your end. You can't envision your end. That's weird. That's where you're going to die. Yeah. Like, if you don't have anything happening after you reach that mountain, like, really, that's a weird thing to have projected for yourself. And also, what if you're thinking small and that mountain is like super not actually your thing? I think, you know, like... Find something that serves you today and then do that again tomorrow and then do that again the next day without so much thinking about what the future has to look like. Because it it doesn't matter what you think the future is going to look like. It won't. Like, when have you ever predicted your future accurately? 
Almost never. <laughs> right. So like, why do we spend all this time... Trying to predict the future. <laughs> being, <laughs> trying to predict it. No. like, And that's not saying like, you know, don't have goals or like aspirations or allow the vision of like this thing you really want. Um, you know, that's good. That's a good energy to foster. But like getting caught up on like exactly what it's supposed to look like and when it's supposed to happen, like... Again, like you'll, you might totally undershoot doing that too. Yeah. Because, you know, we have a tendency to do that. You're, you're telling her. Like, oh man, I'm never even going to get that. Like, I'm never going to make it to the top of the mountain. Well, it turns out you could easily make it to the top of the mountain and you could probably get there 10 times faster than you think that you're going to. And it's going to be like way more fun along the way, potentially, if you don't think that that's the end all be all. But like, if you think that that is the unachievable thing, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's like if if when if I make that thing so significant and like it's the end all be all, it's everything, then uh, that's exactly what it'll be. But if I just allow it to be part yeah. of the path, then and it can be a great part of the path, but still part of the path. Yeah. Right. And you might you know spend five years getting to the top of that mountain, and it turns out you're a five minute walk down that path to the most beautiful crystal pool <laughs> right next to it that you didn't even know was there that's like full of like deer and bunny rabbits and shooting stars and like all the magic and you would just were like I'm getting to the top of the mountain it's like no 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 five feet to the <laughs> left is like the best thing you've ever seen the thing that you never would have thought to imagine who knew that you wanted sparkling pool <laughs> and bunny rabbits and deer like who knew yeah. no you were just picturing this pokey mountaintop in the wind <laughs> like like a north face ad like you know what you know what, you know what happens yeah. in ads? people are cold that's what happens in north face ads super, super cold and hungry and tired. they've got some like shitty super sweet chewy thing that's supposed to be a meal <laughs> no 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 go five feet down and there's this warm, perfect blue water waiting for you. Well, uh, that's such a good tip. Thank you. That's, it, it's, it's funny because that's actually kind of what the podcast... That's how the, the podcast thing started was like I had this kind of crazy long-term big vision that just sort of came to me in the beginning of the year. I'm really captivated by this vision of a world full of enlivening organizations, right? I'm like that. And I, and I was like, okay, wow. If I really spent... If I dedicated like all my energy towards that end, like... I know I'll never get there, but that would be sweet. Like that would be a dope path to walk down. And I'd feel good about that. Sure. And I was like, all right, well, what's the first yeah. step? And talking about a lot of different things. And I was like, well, shit, I know I'm going to already go. And I already nerd out and go on these like learning journeys anyway. And I was like, well, shit, just record it and do it out loud. And that's how the podcast idea came about. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm going to do this stuff anyway. So why not just record it and share it with people? And that's mm -hmm. kind of like my game plan right now. <laughs> and if it... And if it stopped today, it doesn't take away that today's conversation or any that came before it. We're good. True. Very true. <laughs> Very true. Wow. I love it. I love it. So I wanted to start to just wrap up here. And a couple couple questions um, that uh, they're brief questions. Your, your response doesn't have to be brief. You can you know, answer them whatever <laughs> length you want. But hopefully the question itself uh, is, is fairly short since I have a tendency to ramble sometimes. Um, but you, know, you have such an inspiring story. Who inspired you or continues to inspire you? Well, I know that I'm a product of my parents as we all are. 
in ways. My mother always told me not to dim my star. And that's something when we were talking about shame and success that came up for me um, because I still have to tell myself that. No, don't be too big. <laughs> don't be too too much. Um, still, still gets in the way a little bit. And so that reminder is very necessary and has served me well. Um, to know that I am my best self when I let my light shine. No apologies. Um, and uh, being raised in the way that I was, being raised so so connected to to our planet, to community, to you know where we come from, um, and really honoring this earth that holds us and feeds us and nourishes us. It's a gift. We forget that we are a piece of this. We are just a little sliver in this puzzle. That's that's an important thing for me to come back to. I am made of earth. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, you know, you mentioned the reminder you give yourself that your mom taught you as a little girl to not dim your star. Are there any other, uh, whether it's practices or maybe quotes or things like that, that you lean on to keep doing your work and keep creating the environment you're creating? New ones come up here and there, but not really. I, I think finding, finding your own guiding star is really important. Having those, those set values to come back to. Um, there's a return to home. And it's not home, you know, my home state of Minnesota. It's not, <laughs> it's home here. It's home, it's home inside of me, which uh, is sometimes challenging for me to access. I get very much in my head and I'm, <laughs> I'm working and I'm distracted and there's so much stimulus going on. But uh, finding, finding that white space where you can think, um, Sometimes at the studio, they joke that I should have a shower as my office <laughs> <laughs> because that's when all of my best ideas happen. <laughs> so I, probably all of my formulas came to me while showering, um, which is really inconvenient uh, because then I have to remember when I get out what what all went into We're gonna them. Get you. Uh, I used to have this thing. I used, I used to have the same <laughs> problem. And I swear, I bought a... Uh, a whiteboard for the shower. Yep. Okay. Excellent. I will expect it on my desk. All the next future week. future benefactors, uh, beneficiaries <laughs> of that. All the future customers, you're welcome in advance for the brilliance that it will come out of her yeah. mind and will come to your skin. <laughs> but it is true. I think that we just need to leave enough space. The there's a quote, and I forget who it's by, and I'm going to butcher it anyway, so I'm not going to try. But it's about the the music is in the white space. It's in the space between the notes. And there's a couple variations of that quote. Um, and I have learned repeatedly that my magic happens in the white space. It's not where I sit on the org chart. It's not the things that I'm saying. It's not, you know, these like structured places where you see me show up. It's, it's everything in between. It's the air. I love that. And so when you think about like the idea of 
you know, kind of going all the way back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, to a few of the a few of the recurring themes that are woven throughout this throughout our, our conversation also are clearly just in the ethos in the air over there, right? It, ritual, magic, um, connection. Uh, and I'm curious, what are the what are those rituals in, that you have for yourself, at, like individually as as just for yourself, and then also as like a, as a leader of a company and for your environment? What are the rituals that you lean on to enliven yourself so you can keep showing up the way you want to? I'm working on how I do that professionally because I am challenged with it because I do do my most creative work solo and when there's white space and the world has gotten really full around me and the white space has been very limited. And so I do need a shower in my office. (laughs) Probably on a recycled water system. So I'm not using the whole planet's <laughs> waters to fuel my inspiration. Um, cleansing on a personal level really is, has become a, a, a ritual for me that is sacred. And there's something in, in the power of touch. And we forget that we can get that from ourselves. And, through all of history, we've come together um, in community as well as solo to cleanse, to rinse with water, to wash away the day, to anoint with oils, to massage, to feel the texture of our fingertips, the warmth of our skin. That's really special. And we forget we cleanse to remove dirt. We moisturize to prevent wrinkles. We look in the mirror to throw hate at ourselves. And I want to shift that. Yeah. And that, that sort of brings me to, to my last question, which is what is that shift and the change that you want to seek in the world that you seek to make? <laughs> Way to live or love. I want you to accept it. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, May, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, just being so open and sharing your story. I'm totally inspired by everything you've created and everything you're going to create. Uh, you know, just listening to you and, and getting a chance to get to know you better. I can, I can just, it's such a cool through line, right? I can see, I can see the little girl like pulling mud out of the river in Minnesota and taking the <laughs> formations with her, you know, with her community there. And then like seeing the through line all the way to where you are now running this fantastic company based out of LA, living, living your dream is, uh, is just super exciting. So uh, thanks for so much for being willing to spend some time with me and, and share, share your story. Um, I love it. It's great. <laughs> Truly my pleasure and my honor. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.